0: It was the 2006 Women's Snowboarding Cross, Snowboard Cross, that there were four participants, as is normal. There was an American and a Canadian, uh, two Canadians, and a Swiss lady. Uh, Snowboard cross, you might know, is uh, really a race around an obstacle course. The uh, announcer was very, very passionate, very interested, and it was a phenomenal race. Almost from the get-go, the two Canadians wiped out, and the American was very, very far ahead of the Swiss lady. Twice the announcer, at least the one that I've listened to, declared that this American had it wrapped up. It was in the bag. So she goes on a ramp. She flies in the air and she kind of did something like a trick. Now this is a race. There really are no points for style. It was a race. And she does a trick because she was so far ahead. It wasn't even a race by that point. And in that trick somewhat showing off that was the place where she wiped out found herself on the ground and astonishment of astonishments the Swiss lady came and caught up ended up being somewhat close at that point. But the Swiss lady ultimately won The race and the American, sad to say, went down somewhat embarrassed. It's an embarrassing thing to get a silver medal in that circumstance when you have it so taken care of. That is exactly how it happens, though, sometimes, is it not? Sometimes races do not go to the fastest. Sometimes... Matches and sporting fights do not go to the strongest. Oftentimes, someone who is less equipped, less talented, ends up becoming the victor. It seems to me that something like that illustrates for us very well the 30th verse of Romans chapter 9. Romans 9:30 reads this way so that we remember Paul writes that the gentiles which followed not after righteousness have attained to righteousness even the righteousness which is of faith the gentiles have attained righteousness Romans 8.30, backing up just a little bit. Let me just give you a a little bit of background. Romans chapter 9, if you've not read it recently, or if you've never read Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 8.30 reads this way, and then it's going to move into chapter 9. Paul says this, Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. What Paul is telling us is that there is, in a sense, a a golden chain of salvation. That there are people, or we can say there is a people, that God has predestinated. He has set his love upon them before all worlds then tells us that they are called, that is to say, prior to creation, they are predestined, and then in time and space, they are called to believe the gospel that Paul's been talking about throughout the rest of the book of Romans. And then he says that they are justified, a wonderful word, that is to say, they are declared righteous in God's courtroom. Through nothing that they have done and those whom he justifies, those whom he declares righteous are then glorified and we await that, do we not? We look forward to that when we will be glorified in a way similar to the way that the Lord Jesus was glorified at his resurrection, some of what we talked about uh, this morning As we seek to look to heaven, we will be, in a sense, fitted for that place in a resurrection body that will not have the breaking down that our present uh, existence contains. Now, Paul will then go through the rest of Romans chapter 9, in a sense, unpacking this issue, this thorny issue of predestination. The idea that God is sovereign in all things, but he is sovereign when it comes to salvation. And God can make a choice, and his choice is ultimate. His choice is central. And so he makes it clear that God can choose Jacob over Israel. Uh, Jacob over Esau, I should say. And God can make it so that Israel is chosen over Pharaoh. God has this right. And, he un- and Paul unpacks this for us, telling us that God has the right as the potter. He can make one God in this matter. Reading Romans chapter 9, I have to say, I certainly have. I was not born as the young people, the covenant children here were came to these things much later in life, and I would object. I had all these objections to God's sovereignty, and I would read Romans chapter 9, and I'd say, oh, here's my objection, and then Paul would answer that objection. Here's my objection, and Paul would answer that objection as well, and he seems to take you right to the point where We would cross from the place of the creature into the mind of the creator. And if we would enter into the mind of the creator, no longer being in the place of the creature, then we would enter into a maze. We would enter into a labyrinth that we would never be able to escape. Why? Because God's ways are not our ways. God's ways are high above our ways. And his thoughts are not our thoughts and our thoughts are not his thoughts. Some would say, oh, but it's not fair. And he ends the argument, Paul ends the argument saying this, nay, but O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, why hast thou made me thus? At the end of the day, God is creator and he has sovereignty, and he can do what he wants, and everything he does is right. Everything he does is good, and everything he does is fair. Even if you do not understand it, even if you do not not fully grasp it, this side of eternity, God is sovereign. But it seems as we read the Bible, God is in the business of making those who who exalt themselves to be brought low. And he is in the business of taking those who are nothing and those who are nobody, and he exalts them to very, very high places. The Jews had the lead. The Jews had a very, very big lead, you see. For they had the covenants, They had worship, they had the fathers, they had so many things. They had all these advantages and they were running ahead. But then they begin to make a mistake. They begin to think that their law keeping They begin to think that their keeping of the feasts and circumcision and their avoidance of pork and of lobster and all of these things, these things actually set them apart and make them better than the Gentiles, so that there is, in a sense, a Jewish arrogance against the Gentiles. Who are these dogs? Who are these pig-eating Gentiles? They're filthy. But we, we are great and they have a high view of themselves. We keep the feasts. We keep circumcision. These things were not given to make them arrogant, but they used these things to prop themselves up. We ought to be very careful then, are we not? God has given so many things to us as New Testament believers. And we must use these as he has intended for us to use these things. These are tokens of his grace and of his mercy. God has given us baptism, the Lord's Supper, the word of God, preaching. He's given to us the Lord's day. He's given to us evening worship. Let none of us take these things and... Use these to set us apart from others. These things are pure grace, pure grace, and our response to the pure grace that God has shown to us. But it seems that the the Jews, the the whole nation of observant Jews 2,000 years ago can be summarized in the words that uh, a man had with, with the Lord Jesus. He comes to Jesus and he says, What must I do to be saved? What must I do to have eternal life? Jesus says to him in Mark chapter 10, starting at 19, he says, Do not commit adultery. Do not kill. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness defraud not honor thy father and mother. And he answered and said unto him, Master, all these have I observed from my youth. That's an astonishing statement. I've kept all of the word of God. I've kept all of these commandments. It's almost like this guy has this idea, piece of cake, you know, wake up in the morning, make my bed, keep the law of God, eat breakfast, go on to work. This is just checking a box for him. This man doesn't understand that the law of God ought to humble him. But he is there in the face of the Lord Jesus, and he is exalting himself. This is astonishing arrogance. This is astonishing hubris on his part. Paul makes it clear that the Jews pursued righteousness. They pursued a right standing with God, but they pursued it as if it were to be attained by law-keeping rather than as if it were to be attained by faith and obtained by faith in God and faith in Christ. So the Jews thought that they had reason to boast in their attainments when instead they should have boasted in their God and praised him for his mercy and praised him for his grace to them. Instead they boast and they boast against the Gentiles, and they boast even before God and Jesus that they are greater. But the Gentiles obtain a righteousness. Romans 9:30 says, That the Gentiles, which followed not after righteousness, have attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith. That is to say, the Gentiles were so far behind. It is as if the starting gun was shot, and the Gentiles didn't even know they were in a race, they didn't even know what way to run. In a sense, if anything, they were going in the opposite direction. The Jews are running ahead. They're going so fast and so hard. It looks like they're going to win. But the Gentiles are able to finish the race. They're able to win, in a sense. And in some ways, we could say they overtake the Jews. Why? Because they understood those at that time. They understood That God is a gracious God. They understood in a way that even the Jews should have understood, but they seem to have surpassed them in their understanding. God is a gracious God. And he sent his son into this world. And that son has done marvelous things. He did signs and wonders. Jesus rose, uh, raised people from the dead, and he feeds 3,000 and 4,000 and 5,000, and he walks on water at his baptism. The heavens are opened, and the Father speaks, and the dove comes down and resides upon him. That is the Holy Spirit. At the transfiguration, marvelously, there's an unveiling of who Jesus is, the glory, the bright light of who he is. And the Father once again speaks, and there is Moses and Elijah representing the law and the prophets, and the way that these all find their height, their their apex, and their pinnacle in Jesus Christ, who fulfills the law and the prophets. All of these things are marvelous, all of these things are wonderful surpassing them all is his death upon the cross for you and for me. For in that he defeated Satan in that he offered up an atonement for your sins and my sins. And then he was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit by the plan of the Father. And therefore by that he has conquered death for you and for me. So the death and the resurrection of Jesus, we can say, surpasses everything else that he did. Marvelous and wonderful as all of these things are. And the Jews are beginning to understand this in the time of the the first century when these things are written. You might remember Acts chapter 10. Peter receives a vision. He is to go and he Goes to a Gentile's house, Cornelius's house. I, if I might paraphrase, I, I don't know what I'm doing here. I'm just here. I've got to tell you some stuff. Well, I've had, uh, Cornelius. I've had a kind of a, a, a vision, or I've, I've been told I'm st- so supposed to hear from you. So he preaches the gospel to this Gentile. What happens? They receive the power of the Holy Spirit. Falls upon them. And then Peter gets in trouble with his presbytery. <laughs> so, next chapter, chapter 11, his presbytery comes and says, What are you doing? What are you doing giving our Messiah to the Gentiles? Don't you know he's our Messiah? And being good Presbyterians, the apostles were, he makes his case. And they listen and they weigh these things. And what do they conclude? Well, we don't need to defrock Peter. I guess God has sent the gospel to the Jews as well. And it seems through much of the rest of the book of Acts, that's what we see. The Gentiles are coming to understand these things. That's really how the book of Acts ends. Paul says, This gospel is going to the Gentiles and they will listen. Those who were going in the wrong direction, those who were headed for destruction, are receiving the gospel and are receiving Jesus by faith and they are receiving eternal life. What should we take from this? How should we apply these things to ourselves? What has God given to you? What has he given to you that you may be inclined to use to prop yourself up above others? What has he given to you that is pure grace that you turn into a work? We must be very, very careful. Our lives must be all about the grace and the mercy of Jesus given to you and given to me, casting off our own foolish pride, casting our own faith in our own performances and receiving what God gives by grace. It is remarkable what the Apostle Paul was used to do in redemptive history. There is one who was like those Jews, rushing ahead. He tells us in the book of Galatians, he was rushing ahead. He was advancing even faster and harder than all of his peers. If anyone could have attained righteousness by the law, it would have been him. But he understands that that's not how it is to be attained You remember when the Apostle Paul is called, he is uh, knocked down and he is blinded. And God says, Jesus says that this is an instrument, this one Saul, who is Paul, he is a particular instrument. You ever wonder about those words? What is the special instrumentality of this man? He is remarkable. I don't know about you. The whole Bible is the word of God. I love every word of it. I receive every word of it. But when we're honest with ourselves, there are some portions of the word of God that draw us in. There are some that delight us and strengthen us. Maybe for you it might be uh, something in the poets. I hope it's the Psalms. I hope it's the Gospels. But there's something about the Apostle Paul. Is there not? You ever played checkmate with, or have you ever played chess with someone, and you just can't beat them? You move one way and you're in check. You move another way and you're in check, and it's it's very frustrating. I would say that the Apostle Paul, in a sense, checkmates you wherever you are. What prevents you from coming to Christ? There are many things that people will come up with. Some will say, well, I am very, very sinful. I am very, very sinful. God could not forgive my sin. You know that this man, this instrument of God, 1 Timothy 1.15, calls himself the chief of sinners. The chief of sinners. Now, let's just stop for a moment. You might have applied that to yourself. And if so, that's right. There's something right about that. When you sin... When you realize how utterly needy you are and the greatness of our guilt before God, we feel as though each and every one of us is the chief of sinners. However, there is something particular about the Apostle Paul in that he was advancing far above others, but he is able to say he is the chief of sinners in a special way. In a sense, He was almost the first antichrist as he persecuted the church, sought to have them jailed, sought to have them killed. What would have happened if he had been able to continue like that? Chief of sinners. Now you might be thinking, well, I could be the chief of sinners. Well, there's a sense in which... What he was doing right then and there, maybe worse than anyone could ever imagine anything else. You cannot be worse than him. So, in a sense, he checkmates you. That is to say, have you persecuted the church in that sort of way, in such an anti Christ way? You should come to Christ. However, you might not have come to Christ fully. And the reason for that might be, you might think you have outperformed others. You might think, well, you know, I've done a fair amount of things. You might uh, think that you have attained to some sort of righteousness. But if you read Philippians chapter 3, Paul has some remarkable things to say there. He talks about the fact that if anyone were to have confidence in the flesh, he has more. And he lists all of his accomplishments, some of which he's born into. (laughs) Naming his tribe, naming that he's part of Israel. But then he says, as far as righteousness that can be attained by the law, he said, flawless in a sense. So... Have you attained a a righteousness that far exceeds the Pharisees? Have you attained a righteousness that far exceeds Saul? I would say, no, you have not. You see, in a sense, how he checkmates you there. This, it seems to to me, it it seems to be the the one man who can simultaneously say, "I, I am more righteous than anyone, but it's dung. But in a sense, I am more wicked than anyone, as far as far as as, as uh, redemptive history goes. In a sense, either way, you checkmated, and there is no way out. Whether it is a thought of your own sinfulness, or whether it is a thought of your own self righteousness, there's no reason not to come to Christ, not to 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 put your trust in Him. There's every reason to lean upon him and to acknowledge that he is a merciful savior, that this is the lamb of God for for sinners wounded. This is the eternal son of God who suffered in the body and suffered in the soul and righteously was raised from the dead. We worship a God, the God of all creation, God of sovereignty and the one who delights to make the first last and to make the last first. And so therefore, you must humble yourself before God and you must acknowledge his grace and his mercy. And in that, we see the ways that God causes those who have no righteousness in and of themselves, who who are born not even knowing which way is up. He gives us grace and he gives us mercy. And God gives us the faith uh, that he requires of us. God requires of that of us that which he gives. Receive Christ this day and each Lord's day at this time, let us pray. Our gracious God and our Heavenly Father. You are marvelous and you are wonderful. And we are amazed at your word more and more. We pray that as we come to you, Lord's Day by Lord's Day, as we come to you day by day, that you would hear our prayers, that you would not turn us away, that you would receive us as sons and daughters. We acknowledge that we do not have a sonship like that of the Savior, but we thank you that you have adopted us and you have made us to have uh, all of the privileges. You have granted us so many privileges And we thank you for the privilege that we have even today to worship you. Bless us in in our homeward going. Bless us as we seek to serve you and bless you. Help us through this week to love you and to love our neighbors. And through that, help us to fulfill the law. Help us to do so as a token of redemptive gratitude thankful for all that you have done for us in Christ. In his name we pray, amen.